Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? It's Tuesday again. That means it's time once more for the Plantropology Podcast. So we dive into the lives and careers of some very cool, really rad plant people to find out what keeps them coming back for more and to learn why they do what they do. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the sciences. And as always, I am just so excited to be with you today. I hope you're doing well. Uh, as I record this, it is early March. It's not quite spring yet, which is good because it's supposed to be about 15 degrees here where I am this week. I'm in Texas, if you don't know that already. And yes, it gets cold here. It happens. But spring is on its way, and it's time to start talking about the things in our world. And you may be thinking about planting a tree. And, you know, it's not a bad time to plant a tree, even though when they're dormant, maybe in the late fall is a little better. But I am all for planting trees. And I think that's a good thing to do. However, 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 my friends, there is one tree you should not plant. And we're going to talk about what that is today. Uh, keeping with the tree theme as we go through the spring really ties in well with our partner for the podcast, Forest Proud. And I'm going to talk about them a little bit more at the mid-roll, but they are an organization, a nonprofit organization at that, that focuses on forest-based climate solutions. And we'll talk about them a little bit more. But uh, through someone at Forest Proud and a whole lot of other people involved in that organization, either directly or tangentially, I met our guest, Dr. Dave Coyle. Now, I'll say I called him David, I think, the whole time we recorded this, and he didn't correct me because he's a very nice guy, uh, but it said very clearly on the little recording screen that he went by Dave, and I just, I'm a bad person. So I think I called him David the whole time. So Dave, I'm, I'm very sorry, but uh, Dave's an assistant professor in forest health and invasives at Clemson University, and we bonded quickly over a shared hatred of Bradford pears. So on this episode, we talked about invasive plants and trees. We talked about academia, managing different species, whether that be insects or trees or diseases or different things that cause issues in both the home landscape as well as the overall ecological landscape. We talked about being a good person. And we talked about competitive sports involving shrimp. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Dave is funny and a prolific scientist and a fantastic educator. And uh, we, I think, got along great. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So without any more ado, let's jump into today's episode of Planthropology, The Worst Trees, Saving Your Ash, and the Shrimp Olympics with Dr. Dave Coyle. Right. Well, excited to be back today and uh, finally getting to do this recording. Uh, David, how are you doing today? I'm good, Vikram. Thanks for having me on here. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited. We, uh, you know, connected on Twitter a while ago, and uh, I've had several people publicly and privately be like, "You need to talk to David on the show." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll get to." And they're like, "No, no, you're not. You're not listening to me." <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so I'm glad we got to coordinate this and that my lack of any kind of organizational skills didn't get too much in the way of this. No, man, everything is good. And I always get a little, uh, a little twitchy when someone says people have privately contacted them about me. So I have probably more <laughs> questions. Uh, no, it's all, for, nothing, nothing for bad. another day, I mean, for another day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was no, no law enforcement. No, I mean, good, it was, it was good. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so David, why don't we start off and, uh, just, I'll give you a chance to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? You know, what got you into what you're doing now? Whatever you want to tell us. Sure, man. Yeah, I grew up a farm kid in southeastern Minnesota. Hogs, corn, standard stuff. Um, you know, went to school at a small private liberal arts college in northeastern Iowa called Luther College. Uh, that I went there mostly because it was only a half hour away from home and being a very small town kid. You know, I graduated in class of 36 wasn't really ready to branch that far away. Sure. So I went there, um, lived the college life. I played football while I was there. And then I kind of, you know, got my academic life together later in my uh, Luther career. The first couple of years were rough. So this is a, a message to all the young folks. 
you can overcome poor starts to college. So don't let those grades, uh, you know, hold you down. For sure. Af- yeah. After Luther, I, you know, I went in, I was going to be a math major. And after about a week in calculus, I realized they didn't use numbers anymore. And I was just kind of <laughs> like, what are we doing here? And I was completely lost. So that was out. Um, and then I was going to be an elementary ed major. And I just thought, this is not, not where I belong. I don't think I have the patience for for children that aren't my own that much, mm-hmm. at least not for that long of a duration during a mm-hmm. day. Um, teachers need to be paid more for um, just so we're there. But 100%. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so then I got a biology degree and I guess I thought in my head I was going to go train whales or something awesome, you know, at SeaWorld or something like that. <laughs> Turns out there's not many of those jobs. So when I graduated, my options were to uh, go work with my best friend at his roofing company, and we were going to make a couple grand over the year and then go to Europe and blow it and take it from there. Or I had an offer to do a master's degree at Iowa State University yeah, in forestry and entomology. And I guess at, t- at the time, it's probably one of the better decisions I made because I just thought this buys me two to three years to figure out my life. Went there, did that. Um, Worked in hybrid poplars and the cottonwood leaf beetle, and I kind of learned what research was and how to do it. And it turns out I liked it. I did all right with it. Then I got a job with the U.S. Forest Service in South Carolina, and I worked there for four and a half years on a big, um, big research project. I was kind of the lead technician, and we looked at the impact of irrigation and fertilization on tree growth and biomass and nutrient allocation. So we had this wow. great big sixty-acre replicated, uh, you know plots on automatic fertilization and irrigation. And so that was really, really interesting. That's kind of where I learned a lot about the, you know, tree physiology and how all of that mm-hmm. stuff fits together. Um, after a few years of that, I realized I, maybe I didn't like being told what to do all the time. And I figured I wanted to run my own thing. So I went back and got my PhD at Wisconsin, worked in invasive species. There's a suite of invasive root weevils in the, uh, in the upper peninsula in Northern Wisconsin. So I worked with those during that time, I realized, good, Governor, it is so cold up here. And I remember, <laughs> you know, when I first went to South Carolina, it was just hot. And all I was doing was sweating. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I am I am a Midwestern kid of, of Scandinavian stock. I do not belong here. And so, you know, I moved back up north. And then I remember when, when my mind changed, I was walking to campus. I was crossing these railroad tracks. It was like negative. Who knows what? The wind was blowing. I had hair at the time. And everything was just frozen, right? And I remember thinking, this sucks. And so when I had a chance to do a postdoc at the University of Georgia, I was just like, I'm out. Bye. And uh, pretty much haven't looked back. I mean, the North is is nice and some people like it, but it's just not. I'm done. Done up there. Um, yeah, that that sounds pretty brutal. And, and especially kind of jumping back and forth from the Midwest and dealing with, yeah, you know, whatever you said, negative, disgusting temperatures yeah. to, to Georgia. <laughs> in yeah. South Carolina, that's got to be like, that's got to take some adjustment. I think I learned on the second trip down south, though, that I was much more happy sweating than freezing. Yeah, I can you buy know? that. And yeah. I think, you know, I think everybody has their own internal what they will and won't live with. I will live with sweating. I, I do not like being cold anymore. And I think when you're growing up up there, you just don't even know any better. Right? right, you just think, oh, it's freezing because it's freezing season, and that first forty <laughs> degree day, everyone's out in shorts and you're playing like, you know, basketball without shirts on because it's forty degrees after winter. It's warm. I mean, forty degrees now, and I don't leave the house. I'm just mm-hmm. like, nope, that's freezing to me at this point. <laughs> um, so anyway, came back to Georgia for a postdoc, and then I did you know forest health stuff, you know, a lot of pine pine health work down here, and then parlayed that into a position with a regional extension group called Southern Regional Extension Forestry, and I ran a regional forest health and invasive species program. So I okay. essentially um, got money from the Forest Service to, to provide a consistent education to all the forestry folks in the region. So all the forestry commissions and forestry associations, all that. So I traveled a lot and went around all the 13, so the Southern region, to those that aren't familiar, it goes Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kentucky, Virginia, and kind of all those 13 states. Mm-hmm. So I was all over, you know, we've got a website, we did webinars, the whole spiel. And then a few years after that, in uh, well, August of 18, I started at Clemson University doing a forest health and invasive species extension position. And that has some research with it too. And that's where we are today. That's awesome. So as you know, we were talking before 
I hit record and you said you were a hundred percent extension. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, in universe, so do you teach any formal classes or is it all extension style programming? Uh, I teach when asked because I'm a nice okay. dude. I'm a nice guy. Fair and, enough. And Fair enough. Wants to be, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a handful of lectures a year I will teach because people have asked me, but I don't have any formal teaching appointment. I don't teach any formal classes. Um, I do have a fairly substantial research program, not by plan, but because uh, in May of 2020, we discovered a federally regulated uh, invasive beetle, the Asian longhorn beetle in South mm-hmm. Carolina. And that just, you know, everything just sort of happened really quickly. So now I've got a fairly substantial research program along with the extension program. That's that's pretty interesting. And and so for those of you who don't understand exactly what we're talking about, I think a lot of folks do, but extension is sort of like the public outreach and public um, education wing of land grant universities across across the US, but kind of across the world, you know, ultimately, uh, there are extension style services everywhere. Um, and uh, so it's an interesting sort of thing where you work with a university, but it's not like a traditional faculty position usually. Yeah, it's, you know, our job is to take the research that the research people have, well, that anyone, we take research and we translate it to be understandable to the layperson. So mm-hmm. all that research about, in my case, you know, how do we manage Southern pine beetle? Well, we know after 30 years of, of all these experiments and studies, thin your pines. You keep them at a certain basal area, a certain number of stems. If you do that, you are extremely unlikely to get Southern pine beetle. I just boiled down like 30 years of research into that one <laughs> sentence. Okay? But that's what this job is, right? Because yeah. no, landowners aren't going to read papers. Tell me no. what to do. You got to cut some of those trees down and then you'll protect all the rest. Okay, okay. done. Yeah. So that's what extension is. And, and it ranges from working with uh, school children, you know, K to 12, 4-H, FFA, all that stuff, all the way to what I primarily do is work with the professionals. So all the forestry folks, DNR folks, um, pesticide applicator types, pest management mm-hmm. people, they all need uh, continuing education credits to keep their certification. So the bulk of what I do is provide those opportunities for them to keep certified as their as a professional. And that's, you know, that's a big task. And one thing that I learned in my you know, uh, admittedly sort of limited time in extension. I was with them for about four years here in Texas, uh, is that you wear a lot of hats and uh, you've got to figure out how to, because there is such a big difference between going and talking to like, say a group of second graders about trees and talking to forestry professionals about trees and, um, the way that you have to approach it is so different. And I think I have maybe forgotten that a little bit being more in the classroom these days and, you know, everything gets presented the same way. You have a very like set way that you go through material and it's nice in some ways, but part of me misses the, which is actually probably why I do this podcast and some of my other outreach stuff, sort of the, the diversity of going and talking to various groups. Yeah. And, you know, you start to pick up what works for each group, right? So I've got a, a kindergartner and a second grader. And so every year I try to take live insects, you know, to the classroom and go around the, the school mm-hmm. and, you know, do that thing. With little kids like that, all you've got to do is talk about poop and you've got them, <laughs> right? So That's what so do I lead with? Dung beetles. Oh my gosh, they roll a ball of poop and they, you know, they laugh hysterically, but they are, they're yours for the rest of the time. Like you have got them. You've and already um, won. Yeah, already won. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you say beyond that. Um, that's probably not how you're going to lead with like um, grownups. You know, that, <laughs> that, that will get you some really weird looks. You come in and say, "Hey, who likes poop?" You know, so you just you need to learn your audience, and some of that is just repetition. You know, there's going to be failures. There's you know, you you figure it out as you go. Um, it is extremely satisfying though when I'm working with people that manage land and I can help them solve problems, you know, and I can know with this room full of people, they're responsible for 15,000 acres of forest land. And if we can get a good point across, then you can really feel like you've got an impact, which I think is, you know, one of the best things about the gig. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So to, to back up a little bit, you know, you mentioned that you grew up as a farm kid, rural community, small high school, all that. Uh, is that, I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this question. So, you you know, you've worked with plants and insects and the intersectionality between them and mm-hmm. how that relates to ecosystems in general. Was it an interest? Was it was it a tough? I don't, again, I'm, maybe that's not even the right word. Um, 
I have found, so I, I live in a very agricultural community as well. Right. Um, you know, it's not a small city, but we're, this is ag land as far as you can see where I yep. live. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like there is a struggle from myself and other folks that grow up in these kinds of communities to take some of the like issues that you face on a farm or in an ag community and like sort of apply them to greater, more, maybe more widespread ecosystem like topics and things like that. It seems like there's sometimes a disconnect. Is that something you found to be true working with people and maybe in your own life or was it an easy transition for you? Hmm. That's a good question. I think for me, it was a pretty easy transition, you know, cause I've actually, um, I collected bugs growing up, you know, I lived in the middle of nowhere and, um, mom says somewhere I've got a, we had to do a journal and I said I was going to be an entomologist. I think when I was seven, I had that. Oh, wow. I, I know. And when I graduated from Wisconsin, I was like, holy crap, mom, I actually did what I said I was going to do at <laughs> seven. Like it doesn't happen very often, but, um, uh, it was pretty easy transition for me because I was because I grew up around agriculture and I knew what extension was and I was in 4-H the whole time and all that type of thing. Um, I think the disconnect from what I see is more pronounced now on a rural urban gradient. Hmm. There's a lot of you know when you talk to there's a lot of people you talk to that maybe live in cities and um, they're very disconnected with how things are where food comes from, where, you know, paper comes from and, and mm-hmm. just all these things that it's, there's just a disconnect there, you know, and I don't know what, I don't know what drives that, but um, it's noticeable to me anyway. And so that's why I think it's important when I do get a chance to talk to kids, like tell them, Hey, you know, I know we're in like suburbia right now, but did you know that these cows are going to become food later? Like that's where burgers come from and stuff like that, you know? So um yeah, that's yeah. a tough question. There's just so many nuances to the answer. Well, and I think that that's, that's a good point to make as well, is that when we talk about like science communication in general, whether we're talking to you know a group of kindergartners or industry folks or college students who have no choice but to sit in your classroom and stare at you for an hour, uh, there's, there's a challenge with, with, I think, inserting that nuance that's necessary into there. Because you have to sort of meet people where they are, I think, a lot of times with their educational level, with um, their interest in a, in a topic even. And um, I think part of our job as educators, whether formal or informal, is to not only give people information, but to sort of tell them why it's important. Like, okay, wh- why are you telling me this, man? Like, I, I, why should I care about this? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot. And that's why I ask, you know, any of my students who are, who are working on their stuff, like, why are we even doing this? You know, and they just say, I don't know why. I said, no, I need you to answer that because this is part <laughs> of like, you know, we need to know why are we doing this? And there's, you know, in science, I, I think there's nice to know science and there's need to know science. There's a lot of stuff out there that's nice to know. But there's a, a, also a lot out there that we just need to know to try to improve things. And, you know, those messages are so important, not just to people doing science, but to everyone in general, because they need to know why people do these things. Um, and I you, you see that every so often when, like, budgets come out and, like, oh, they're they're funding a shrimp on a treadwheel project, right? <laughs> and, like, scientists get rolled and grilled and all this, but there's, like, yeah. a, there's an actual reason for it because you're trying to learn the physiology of blah, 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 blah. And, like, it's not just wasting money making shrimp fast. It's trying to, <laughs> like, you know, there's not shrimp Olympics they're trying to trade for it. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a legitimate reason for it, but that never gets shown because it's, like, you know, in some cases you got people just trying to get a sound bite, but there's reasons for all this stuff. And it really does come, it is up to people like us to tell people why these things are happening, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, Shrimp Olympics is definitely going in this episode title, 100%. <laughs> just think of all the shoes. Nike's probably licking their chops at this, <laughs> licking all these tiny little shoes. <laughs> like, oh my God. Oh my God. You know, yeah. there's. I don't know if you've read the the <laughs> novel uh, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Uh, it's about you know life in the Dust Bowl and like every Steinbeck novel, it's bleak and depressing. <laughs> um, but there is a uh, there's a, a a part in there where they're talking about uh, the life in general, and mm-hmm. one guy says, you know, you can't make a racehorse out of a pig, 
And the other guy goes, no, but you can make a very fast pig. And that has <laughs> always stuck with me. So, you know, even if oh, you're a shrimp, gosh. put on your shoes and that's be the right. fastest darn shrimp. Yeah, man. Air crustaceans. That's what they're going to be wearing is, is those. <laughs> oh, uh, this is already one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Um, so so I think anyway, getting back to that, I think it's it's so important for people that have the platform and ability and knowledge to convey some of these things to the general public to do so, you know, and that's why I, I, I love all the stuff you do with, with your things because it's so understandable and relatable to the general public. And I think that's a, it's something that if anything, the last few years has showed us is that we need people to communicate science in general, how it works, why it works, why we do it, what the point is that is sorely needed in all facets of, of everything at this point. Well, I appreciate that. And and I totally agree with you. And it, it's hard. And I was, I think about this a lot of why don't we as academics, as part of the, you know, institution do more of that, right? Like we write papers and, and by the way, I was looking over your, your CV and you have published extensively and that's very impressive. I have like my two papers floating out there and you know, whatever. Uh, um, but, but, we're often in academia, not incentivized, right? There's no, like, you know, we were talking, uh, you know, sort of off mic earlier about, uh, you know, the, the way that our jobs are structured and all of that. And you being extension, clearly you have a big outreach component. And mm -hmm. I have part of that as part of my job description, but most faculty really don't like, there is no incentive to going out and doing like public programming in uh, master gardener talks or master naturalist talks or going to schools. And even if like a faculty member really wants to do that, like who has the time, where do you find the time? You've got to write grants, you got to publish, you got to teach, do the research. And I think it's important that we do that, but I also like, I kind of get it right. It's, it's tough to find like to fit that into the, um, like overwhelming everything that we have to do. Yeah. And I think so. This is, boy, this gets down to, this is tricky because I understand why academia is structured like it is. Now that doesn't mean it's right, but it's structured this sure. way. I think to try to get certain people to focus on certain things, hmm. right? You've got some faculty that you, that their job is to teach and do a bunch of teaching and hopefully do it well. Uh, some faculty are focused on research to do a bunch of research and you hope it will. And some are focused on extension, right? Um, some of these, but some people, you know, they get, you know, what you call the suicide split when you have a teaching research and extension position, it gets tough to do any one of those things. Great. When you're yeah. trying to do all of those things. And I think part of the, part of the issue is that you get some faculty that get into their jobs and they may have a, teaching and research appointment that they may be very good at or really like to do the public outreach too. Well, like you said, it's not incentivized. And they're, if they do a lot of it, they could very well get dinged at their re reviews. Like, why mm -hmm. are you doing all this outreach? You should be teaching and research, even if outreach is a great skill they have. And I think part of that is like this old antiquated way that academia measures its people is based on what we expect you to do and how do you fill those boxes. Right. Um, I don't know. It's unfortunate. It, it, things definitely need to change. And so we were talking earlier about social media and how to measure that stuff. And I, I think a lot of administrators don't have a clue how to yeah. measure it. You know, like we send in, here's our, our, our impact and our impressions and this, that, the other. And I strongly suspect they look at it, the box is checked and they move on. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't know. It's it's one of those things. Academia changing academia is like turning a barge. It's yeah. forever. Yeah. And and once it gets turning the wrong way, it's so hard to change it. And I think it's just it's going to take time. Unfortunately, it's going to take time for people. I would say in our generation that use social media to ascend into those administrative levels to sure. then be able to figure out how to better accommodate or or measure this type of thing. You know, and that's, yeah, that's such a good point. And, and I like the illustration you use of uh, the, the barge turning and immediately what popped into my head was this meme of, you know, when that barge got stuck in the canal <laughs> yeah. and there's this tiny little excavator that's like one one thousandth of the size of the ship, like trying to dig it out. Yeah. 
And it, but it, but in all seriousness, it feels that way sometimes. Like yeah. uh, I am trying to have the impact I can, but gosh, this is a big, big ship to write, and that's a, mm-hmm. uh, um, and that's not to say it's not a challenge we should be taking on. I think we need to be taking on that challenge as a, as an as an academic community as a whole. Uh, but it, it it is a challenge, especially when you're trying to like, you know, keep your job and progress through your career and do all the stuff. I think yeah. those things are important, but yeah, keeping your job one one could argue that is quite important actually. I like eating and you know having heat in the winter <laughs> yeah, and all not, of that. Not being rained on in the rain it rains. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a problem, you know, and a lot of people I think this is maybe a generalization, but a lot of assistant professors could probably be really good at at social media and or just outreach in general, but we need to get tenure. Mm-hmm. So for the first six years of our life, we are all laser focused on doing exactly what our mentoring committee, our bosses are telling us to do to get tenure, to attain this thing that we have to get. And then by the time you get it, you're knee deep in all this other stuff. You've got this mm-hmm. research program going, you're teaching four classes. And well, at that point, who's got time to really dive into this stuff? You know, it's it's like the people that should be doing a lot of the outreach early on just don't get a chance because it's not encouraged. Yeah. Or, or dare I say squashed in some cases. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. And I think we'll get there. I, I think I, I see a lot of things. And, you know, I think that in, in these academic type spaces um, on this podcast, other podcasts, but just even in, in our communities, it's easy to get sort of um, bogged down in some of this, right? And, and sort of mm-hmm. get discouraged by some of this. But I see a lot changing. I see a lot of people, uh, you know, doing the the things that we need to do to address some of the issues from, you know, inequality and in, in uh, academic circles and everything else in between. I, I, I So I'm hopeful for the future and, and I think we'll get there. Yeah, I think the and I agree with you. I, I do see the tide changing. I think the key now is to make sure that people who are trying to change things for the better are not perpetually preaching to the choir. Yeah, right? there's it's it's tough to break out of the circle that, you know, everyone agrees with us. Well, what mm-hmm. if we got to reach those other people, right? You got to reach the other side of the aisle, as they put it. And that can be challenging because it can be scary to wade into some of those places. Um, but at some point, you just got to do it, you know? So, yeah, for sure. Well, this actually seems like a good point to take a quick break. We'll, I'll play some music and say some weird words, and then we'll come back. And uh, I actually want to get into some of the, um, technical side of this the subject matter side and talk about uh one invasive species and how that relates to forest health and two why bradford pears sucks so much oh boy i can talk on that so so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back well hey there welcome to the mineral fancy meeting you here again how's the family is your grandma still doing well does she still make that delicious jello casserole my god i missed that Anyway, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're enjoying this episode so far. If you want to enjoy more things about Planthropology, hit up all of our social medias. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook uh, as Planthropology or some version of that. So if you'll look for Planthropology, which is Anthropology with a PL slapped haphazardly on the front, look for the green background with the bristlecone pine drawn by the wonderful Dr. Beth Nichols. Um... That'll be me. And you can connect there. Also, we have a great Facebook group called Planthropology's Cool Plant People. You should join it. There's lots of fun stuff that happens in there, mostly memes. And occasionally someone will ask a question that I may or may not know the answer to. Uh, But it's a lot of fun and it's a great group of people. Also, if you are on the TikTok machine, the TikTok machine, I'm at the Plant Prof. And I just had a video go viral which was a real weird experience. Real weird, y'all. I picked up like 10,000 followers on there pretty much overnight. And so now there's people that think I'm cool. Well, they may not think that, but they're following me anyway. So go follow there as well. I also want to thank our sponsors. The first one is Forest Proud. Forest Proud, again, is a nonprofit organization focusing on forest-based climate solutions. They achieve this by linking a number of people in the industry from uh, professionals to land managers and um, forest product companies and 
academia and the public and everyone in between through great social media efforts, through a wonderful database of resources, traditional media, everything else. You should go check out forestproud.org. And if you go to the shop and want some cool hashtag forestproud swag, use the promo code planthropology at checkout and get 10% off your order. I also want to thank the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science, as always, for their continued support of this podcast. There would be literally no way I could do this without them. And it is a wonderful and fulfilling part of my job. And I so much appreciate the opportunity to make this show. So, yeah, thanks, Texas Tech. Go check out forestproud.org. Hey, and stay tuned for the next, oh, I don't know, 30 to 45 seconds. And hear a promo from another great Podfix Network show. Hey, thanks to Podfix as well for letting me be part of it. But stick around for a promo for the great Podfix show, The Airwolf Years, about helicopters, cellos, and 80s television. Do you like 80s television? Of course you do. Do you like helicopters? Of course you do. Do you like men serenading eagles by the waterfront while playing cello? Yes. Yes, you do. If you'd like to hear more about helicopters and cellos, please be sure and tune in to Champa and Klein the Airwolf Years every week on your favorite podcast service. Join hosts Greg and Dave as they discuss every single episode of the classic 1980s television series Airwolf. Be sure and subscribe today. All right. Well, we are back, and uh, I want to jump in to talking a little bit about um, invasive species. So this seems like something that a lot of entomologists end up working in one way or the other. Uh, but how how did you first get interested in this like facet of forestry and entomology? Boy, it just sort of happened. Um, you know, I went back to Wisconsin for my PhD, and I wanted to at the time I had a lot of the stuff I did with the forest service was both above and below ground tree growth. So I did a lot of root work and at you know, back in the, when this was 15 or so years ago, that was mm-hmm. not, not looked at a whole lot. So I wanted to kind of merge my, my love of entomology and my love of my newfound love of tree physiology and root work and do some stuff in that realm. And it just so happened that there was this uh, suite of invasive weevils that were hammering the sugar maples up in the upper peninsula in northern Wisconsin. So the adults feed on foliage for about six weeks and then they die. And then the little larvae feed on the fine roots the rest, you know, for a year and then come out the next year. So it just so happened that's the project that that was there and I was able to get some support to work on it. And that's when I started learning about, you know, invasive species. And at the time, that was when the emerald ash borer was just getting cranking up there. So I oh, started wow. my PhD in the middle of 04. EAB was discovered in 02, just a couple of years before that in Michigan, you know, the uh, the mitt Michigan, not the upper peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, I think that really propelled the invasive species talk uh, to a, a higher level than it had been before. Because all of a sudden, every ash tree was just dying within months. Well, and, and it is interesting that you talk about that time period. So I'm trying to think 15, what was I doing 15 years ago? Uh, I think I was, so I was just, I guess in college, I was getting into horticulture at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I remember pretty vividly um, in some of my plant classes starting to talk about more invasive species and things like that. And it's not something that growing up, I really remember hearing a lot about, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I remember hearing a cautionary tale in some biology class sometime about cane toads or whatever, and <laughs> uh, just moving on with your life. Yeah. But, uh, um, it, it is kind of amazing how much damage and, uh, the economic and ecological problems, some of these like little insects that you would never think about can cause. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating, you know, and the emerald ash borer is, is, and will be our, our model for this for a long time. Hmm. Um, the fact that it came in, you know, it probably got here about 96, 97 based on some of the dendrochronology work they did. So it took five years to find it. Uh, not, not uncommon. You know, mm-hmm. you'd never find like the first thing, you know, that right, be, right. stroke a lot, but it's, it's almost functionally eradicated a genus of trees in Eastern North America in wow. 20, in 20 years. Right. I mean, there's a few survivors. They're working hard to try to restore some stuff. But, you know, the only ashes that seem to be resistant are the ones that they can cross with Manchurian ash, which is mm-hmm. from its native land in China. And you got to have, you know, a little bit in there. 
And then there's some really rare surviving trees. And I forget what percentage, but it's just a sliver, you know. We're not sure why they survive. It's something chemical in there, but it's, it's certainly not enough of them to like repopulate the east with ash. <laughs> sure. Know? Yeah. Um, so this has been a, a real crazy tale that has played out in real time in front of everybody, you know, and, and the, you know, the federal government, we did everything in our power to stop this. And it was just like, you know, it was the, the little digger trying to dig out the bar. <laughs> right. And yeah. that's basically what happened. There's, you know, we've, cause I, I think back, what did we gain from Emerald Ash Borer? Well, we learned all sorts of new tree treatment techniques, like all the tree injection stuff to protect mm-hmm. from everything. All of that, in my opinion, we hone those skills because of EAB, people trying to save their ash. But I'm wow. just, right. Um, <laughs> that's a lame, like, joke. This is, this is going to be <laughs> such a long episode title. <laughs> save your ash and shrimp <laughs> Olympics. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I mean, so what did we learn? We learned how to protect trees using insecticides, right? Because the, the injection methods now are just like great and easy and, and foolproof. What else? You know, well, we learned sometimes bugs are going to come in and we can't do squat about them despite putting every single thing we have at it. Yeah. And that was that was basically what happened here. Um, so circling back, that's kind of where I got into the invasive species thing the first time is um, just working with the bugs that I had in my PhD stuff and then emerald ash borer was happening, happening concurrently. That's that's pretty fascinating. And then, you know, you, more and more, you, you mentioned uh, Asian longhorn beetles earlier. That is mm-hmm. a, a big deal now, or it's becoming a big deal. And then, you know, the pine bark beetle in the uh, West. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have um, we have a lot of oak wilt here in Texas. So we get these little nitidulid beetles that do their thing and then oak trees die and everyone's sad. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, you know, the and the the beetles are only about ten percent of how of the spread of oak wilt. Most of it's blow ground and the roots going yeah, out. Yeah, and yeah, we call them the watermelon beetles. They would always come when you're eating watermelons in the summer, you know. Yeah, but um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting, you know. Some of the stuff like the the pine bark beetles you talked about, those are native, so those are hmm. not invasive. Those are just here. Oh, that's interesting. So, so this is another thing. The reason there were these great big. I mean, you probably think of the mountain pine beetle thing out west, mm-hmm. where just like millions of hectares of trees just like die. That is a crazy, um, you know, interactions between the climate, between poor management, and then just a native beetle doing its thing. Wow! Like, like I'm a I'm this beetle, and if there's a stress tree, I'm going to hit it. And there's just too many stress trees out there. And um, you know, there's lots and lots of great research showing that as the climate warms these beetles are able to go higher and higher up the mountains and hit new mm-hmm. hosts that weren't previously you know available to them so it's a, there's a lot of a lot of interactions a lot of layers to the onion that's really fast you see yeah, i didn't actually realize those weren't an invasive species that's really fascinating mm-hmm. um so when we talk about and, and we've kind of been talking about this issue so you know looking at your your publications and stuff it looks like most of your work has been in the the or a lot of your work has been in how these things um, affect forest health in general, right? Like we lose the ash trees. Um, I actually just released an episode today as we record this about uh, where we talked about chestnut blight and all the issues with that. So that's a different issue, but still we lost the chestnuts and now we're losing, you know, ash trees. And so how do we, and this is maybe a bigger question than we can answer here in the next few minutes, but Mm it seems like we have to have sort of an integrated approach to dealing with these issues, right? It's uh, part um, like, you know, policy at the national level, the government level, part industry standards and the things that we're doing. And then it has to be some part of it has to be like on the individual end, like people that have ash trees in their yards and things like that. Are, are there things at these different levels. And again, this is a big question. So maybe let me, let me, let me focus that in a little bit. Um, are there things that like a homeowner could do or a small landowner could do to deal with some of these issues? Yes. So here's, here's my take on all of what you just said. And I, I hear all what you're saying. What can the homeowner or, or landowner or small private person do? They can alert us when something looks weird and interesting. Right. If it looks off, let us know. 
If okay. you've got stuff dying and it, it's not something you can easily find through your extension folks or online, let us know. Uh, you know, we, we professionals can't be everywhere all the time. And I tell, you know, all the county agents I work with and the professionals, like, y'all need to tell me when you see something weird. Because I'll be honest, most of the time I'm sitting behind a computer nowadays. Mm-hmm. So my, my time in the woods is, is not what I wish it were. So just telling, telling people and reporting things, that's what the homeowner can do. Okay. That's great advice, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think, you know, people notice when they're, especially if you have like one tree in your backyard and it yep. starts declining and there's a weird issue, people notice that. And it's good to know that, oh yeah, no, I just need to go tell someone about this. Yeah. And I mean, pictures nowadays on phones, almost everyone has a phone. You can take a picture and email it still in the yard to your extension agent. Yeah. And in most cases, we can, they can tell if it's something they know or something that's probably not worth worrying about or, oh, this is something new. We need to pass this up the chain to someone else. That's yeah, that's great advice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, you know, we've, we've touched on invasive insects a little bit. Um, I want to talk about my least favorite tree and I think your least favorite tree and a lot of people's least favorite tree, the Bradford pear. Yes. Can you give us the elevator pitch on why they're bad and what they are? <laughs> yeah, yes, I can. Bradford pears were once the darling of the uh, horticulture industry. They're shaped like a lollipop. They have pretty flowers. They have pretty foliage. They have a really funky smell, unfortunately, and nothing, nothing eats them. So from a landscape perspective, they're the perfect yard tree to someone that doesn't want to deal with anything because you plant it. It's impossible to kill. It grows and it looks pretty. That being said, um, they are technically sterile, so when they marketed them as being sterile, they weren't really lying, but um, all it takes is pollen from any other tree in that genus, so any other pyrus, and that can make those fruits on that Bradford pear uh, you know, fertile. So long story short, there's lots of other pyrus pollen out there, and in this day and age, there's zero chance any Bradford pear planted will remain sterile because there's mm-hmm. iris pollen all over the place. Um, and so the, once those things get fertilized, the, the birds and varmints eat the seeds and they go do what they do. So they poop them out, they grow, and they grow into this wild calorie pear, which is uh, extremely aggressive, extremely thorny, and just a general nuisance in every way, shape, and form. So it, uh, you know, it pops tires because of the thorns. It'll have seen it scratch up the face of animals. And uh, it's, it's a really tough invasive tree to get rid of once you got it. And yeah, and they're awful. <laughs> they're just, they are. It, oh, it's, they're the worst. It's, it's funny that you mentioned the smell because I, I tell people that they look good about two weeks out of the year, mm-hmm. you know, once when they're flowering, once when they're changing color, and then they are just awful the rest of the time. Yeah. Uh, but th- that is, it's quite a smell. If you've never smelled a Bradford pear, it's, it, it ain't good. It's not a good thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I've heard, I've seen all sorts of descriptions for what the smell is like. Everything from uh, dirty sweat socks to rotting <laughs> to semen. So there's like all sorts of different, very Somewhere colorful. in between. Yeah. It's maybe a combination. I've never, you know, who knows what that smells <laughs> like, but. It, it wouldn't surprise me if that is the actual accommodation for it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of fun to go on social media and just look up like uh, Bradford pear when they're flowering. Cause Oh my gosh, there are some creative people in this world mm-hmm. and you learn some things. I learn some things every spring. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've never heard it called that. But um, <laughs> so it's good. It's, but it's, and some people don't smell it. You know, I've talked to some people that like, no, I don't smell that. And I'm just like, Okay. I'm sorry. What now? Like, yeah. So, um, wow. Yeah. I think you're right. It's pretty for two weeks and then it just kind of sucks. Yeah. And, and you know, there, I'm in this mindset that if I'm going to plant a pear, I I would Mm -hmm. like to have a pear that I could eat maybe. And uh, a regular pear tree is pretty, pretty. I mean, pretty, pretty, pretty. That's not, that sounds weird. Fairly attractive. Let yes, me go with that. Uh, quite pretty is good too. I said that and I'm like, that broke my brain a little bit anyway. Um, but yeah, they have these like hard little marble sized mm-hmm. like pears on them that, uh, like you said, nothing really eats those. They're just kind of there. Yeah. And you know, they do get soft and squishy later in the year. Um, and I, so, you know, birds eat them and I've even seen some that are, 
ping pong ball size. Oh, wow. And at one point I put that on Twitter and I was like, what bird is going to go at this thing? You know, um, <laughs> joking. But a bunch of people came and said, oh, deer like those. Deer, raccoon. Oh, okay. Thing. It's like, okay, well, that makes more sense, I guess. Um, yeah. They're, and, and, you know, the other thing about these Bradford pears is if you look at them wrong, they're going to break. Uh-huh. Right. If you give them a you know an, an angry glance, usually a branch just falls off out of spite. On your car, yeah, yeah, yep. car, the road, a power line, or something. Um, and it's not un- uncommon, you know, in big storms to see entire trees just completely flay out to where it looks like a T, where like yeah. all the branches are broken, and then there's a just a four foot tall stump in the middle. Um, yeah, they have yeah these like tons of branches, really terrible, just like architecture, and yeah, they're just waiting to fall apart. They are, and it. And it's funny where I am, our climate is usually dry enough and our soils are alkaline enough that they don't seed out too bad around here. Like you, you don't, you don't get a whole lot of the invasive Radfords around here and people they're everywhere. Like I think they're one of our few sources of fall color where I live. Mm-hmm. And so people put them out and every time we have one in our garden here at Texas tech and I look at it and every time I walk by it, I'm like, I really want to cut this down, but it's one of our <laughs> like, there are not a lot of trees in Lubbock, Texas. Yeah, and so yeah. like if you have a tree that looks like a tree, people get mad when you start chainsawing on them. Mm-hmm. But um, I know I posted a video a while back where I think I said something nice about it. And just the shock from you and other people were like, Boo! What are you <laughs> how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> so what, what are the yours and other like industry recommendations about this? Should we be like, you know, ground pruning them, you know, making one horizontal cut four inches up and yeah. <laughs> replacing with something else. It's an easy prune, man. It's an easy prune. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, in some states, South Carolina being one, we have banned the sale of this species. Oh, wow. It was so invasive. So as of October 1, 2024, you can no longer buy or sell. Well, I should say you can no longer sell Pyrus caloriana in South Carolina for any purpose, rootstock, landscape, anything. You can't buy it. Um, we recommend people, and we have a, a program that gives people a native tree for replacement if you cut down your Bradford pear. Our Bradford oh, pear wow. bounty, yeah, we have a Bradford pear bounty program, and um, you know we just want you to bring us in a picture to show that you cut down your Bradford pear, and we'll give you a free native tree. You know, and so the, the type we have varies based on where you are, but we've been actively encouraging people to get rid of these things. Um, it's a, you know, on one hand, so the the pity party people be like well that's not gonna do anything they're all over anyway like i know dude i know but it's an opportunity to educate people because there's a lot of people out there that don't understand that the bradford pear in their yard is contributing to all the thousands of white trees they see every spring along the road Mm -hmm. like there's there's not a, a natural connection for a lot of people so making that connection and Teaching them the importance of planting native things, this is a great opportunity for that. And that's primarily why we're doing it. We want to give people the opportunity to see, look at all these native trees you can put in. Like, here's some stuff that, you know, do you like the pretty red foliage? Well, how about a black gum? That turns pretty red in the fall, too. And so many people are like, oh, I had no idea. You know, do you like pretty white flowers? Well, here's this one. This is pretty white flowers in the spring. And like, oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. And it's native. So it's just an opportunity to teach people you know, there's there's lots of options out there, and I think this falls on professionals to let people know what options are out there. You know, every state should have a plant this, not that booklet, website, whatever, so people can can know this stuff. Because we can't expect, you know, people that don't do this for a living, we can't expect them to know what to put in there. That's such a good idea too. Just an easy, you know, and, and it could be the kind of guides that go to homeowners, landscapers, professionals, anyone and everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like, hey, if you're looking for a small flowering tree, here's some good options, you know. Right. And there's there's lots out there. You know, it's just it's just getting people aware. And and so many people I think see what the neighbor what their neighbor has. And oh, that's nice, I'll have that. You know, and Eh, there's just, you know, it's, and part of this is, you know, look at all the new neighborhoods popping up. They're 85% red maple in this part of the world mm-hmm. with a, a scattering of, you know, maybe something else. But it's just, you know, we are, we are, we haven't learned anything after Dutch elm disease came through and wiped out all the elms. Then mm-hmm. they were replaced with ash uh, in most of the urban areas. And then Emerald Ash War came through and wiped out all the ashes. And then it seems like they were replaced with maples. Like we're one, 
something maple bore away from losing all those. And good God, we haven't learned a thing, you know? Um, I don't know. It's, yeah. frustra- it's frustrating. To be honest. Well, yeah. And that is such a good, um, you know, we talked about healthy canopy management and, and both urban and, you know, natural forest management. I think that one of the big messages that I'll, I've always taken away from it, and this is applicable on a like larger scale as well, is that, you know, one of the best things we can do to preserve our ecosystems, to preserve life in nature is to encourage diversity, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, a diverse canopy, both urban and otherwise, makes for a healthy forest. And um, yeah, naturally, yes, in places we end up with, you know, 80% canopy cover of one thing, but... Mm-hmm you know, nature sort of left to its own devices typically does promote diversity. Yeah. In time, it, it usually gets diverse, you know, and, and the, the, the urban suburban landscape is anything but left to its own devices, right? Mm-hmm. That's a hundred percent on us to put some new stuff in there. And um, I just think, you know, I think we're starting to get there as a profession, but it takes time. Right. And And there's a lot of constraints. There's budgetary constraints. There's, you know, all these, these things working against it. So it's definitely a slow, slow road to hoe, so to speak. For sure. Um, okay. So as we sort of wrap up here, I've got two questions that I like to, to ask one to, you know, plant people and tree people. Uh, what is your favorite tree? You know, I've thought about that cause I knew you were going to ask this. And I think <laughs> for me, my favorite group of trees is magnolia trees. And of the magnolia okay. trees, my favorite one is the big leaf magnolia. And I think it's, and I think that because it's just such a unique thing. Like it's such a, those leaves are so big and that those flowers are the size of plates. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so awesome when you see one growing somewhere. So that to me is my favorite, favorite tree. And I'm with you. I love magnolias. Uh, and that that's the smell of a, a big leaf magnolia is it, – it, I can't describe it. It's such a beautiful smell, and it's a beautiful plant. I wish they did better here where I live. We have uh, high pH soils, and it's pretty dry, and they just yeah. you know scream as soon as you put them in the ground. <laughs> people, have, people have them here, but you know they – it is always a battle, right? So our, our average soil pH around here is like an 8 Oh, ish seven and a half to eight. It's real, real alkaline. Yeah. And they like what? Probably five, five and a half. Yeah. Not eight. Yeah. Not (laughs) eight. eight. Um, So it's like, you know, it's funny because people move out to West Texas and they come from all over the world and they're like, I would like to grow blueberries and magnolias. And I'm like, well, you should move. Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's not going to work. here. Yeah. <laughs> People do that wherever they go though. They they go somewhere and they're like, I want to plant what I had at home. And it's like, it's not how it works. That's that's honestly how we have all these invasive plants in this country, is they were brought over because people wanted to have it look like where they're from. Mm-hmm. That's why we have all these invasive trees, right? Tallow tree, mimosa tree, tree. All these things were here because people wanted something from where they came from, and that's basically how we get invasive plants. Yeah. And it doesn't, yeah. And it's, that's not, not great. Um, so the question I like to throw at people at the end is, you know, we've talked about a lot of things from, you know, academia to, uh, careers and to plants and why you should cut down your Bradford pear. But Mm -hmm. if there was a piece of advice, life advice, landscape advice, whatever that you would like to leave with our listeners, what would that be? This is deep, man. This is deep. (laughs) Um, If there is something I would like to leave with your listeners, particularly the younger ones, I think it would be don't ever let anybody tell you no or that you can't do something. There's always, always a way to make something happen, to get something done. And, um, you know, even if that job advertisement doesn't look like it's right, you know, perfect for what you're after, if you're even remotely interested, you go for it. Because there's always wiggle room in everything. That would be what I would leave for, for the, I guess, kind of our younger, younger section. For everyone else, I would just say, just be kind to each other. Like hmm. the whole world has turned into such a negative cesspool. Just do something nice, pay it forward. And for the love of God, don't be an a-hole. 
That yeah. is really all I want at this point in life is like for people to stop being a-holes to each other. And unfortunately, yeah. Oh man, I can't think of better advice than that is like, <laughs> hey, just just stop it. Just yeah, stop it. <laughs> everybody, just stop it. You know, and um that's really it. You know, and I, okay. I say this more as a father than mm. than an academic or anything, you know, because we, you know, I said our kids are are growing up and it's like, you know, I coach them in baseball and some of the stuff you see on the sidelines is just embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Like, stop it. Just stop it. Like these are seven-year-olds. Mm-hmm. They don't care if they strike out because their buddies on second base and they're just waving to them the whole time. You know, and like it's it just have perspective and don't be an a-hole. That would be my my life advice if if that's what you want to call it. I, I, I love that. That that will probably end up on a Planthropology t-shirt at some point. <laughs> um, man, David, I, I really appreciate your time. That was a lot of fun and and I think a really great and informative um conversation. Uh where can people find you? Do you want to be found? I can be found. Yeah. You can find me on the Twitters at Dr. Dave Coyle, D-R-D-A-V-E-C-O-Y-L-E. That is also where you can find me on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, I am also very easily findable if you just Google my name in Clemson. It pops right on up there. Okay. I'll put links to all of that in the show description. But uh, again, thanks so much for your time. Great advice and great just uh, information today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hey, one thing I wanted to point out, you, you mentioned that there's a lot of Bradford's planted out there, uh-huh. but you're not seeing them go wild yet. I I am going to stay on that soapbox. I think it's probably a matter of time. And it's funny that you said that because we just had a meeting earlier today about a project we're trying to start to look at what constrains the growth of these things. You know, because I don't, you know, I see them all over the Piedmont region, but I don't see them as much in the coastal plain. Mm-hmm. Is it because they just haven't gotten there? Is it something about the sandy soil and humidity they don't like? And I know they've gotten all the way into the Northeast and even uh, Southern Ontario there, but are they cold constrained? So we're just in the process of trying to put a big project together to look at temperature and soil impacts on calorie growth. And, you know, the goal is to eventually have a, some sort of predictive tool to where we could Hmm. plop in a, you know, link it to the soil maps that are out there, plop in a a point and say, what are the odds that it's going to get this in X number of years? So, that's I thought that was, that was kind of cool, yeah, because we're trying to figure out why why are they where they are, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll go have my uh, undergraduate workers break out the chainsaw. Nice. <laughs> uh, oh, no, that's that's good advice, and, you know, keep an eye on it. Make sure it doesn't, you know, start to get out of control. And I know. Uh, and- early management is better. Yeah, you know, and I think right now it's that sort of, it's kind of gone to the middle of Kansas, middle of Nebraska, um, you know, kind of line, and everyone I can let listens over there. I'm like, please try to hold it back because it's going to just keep keep roaring. That's that's good but, advice for sure. Yeah. So, all right, cool, man. Well, thanks so much, and uh, those of you who are listening, I appreciate it. Go look, uh, Doctor Coil up all the places, and uh, we'll talk next time. Hey, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you take that advice to heart. Don't let people tell you no. There's always more you can do, and there's always a way to achieve it. Also, be kind. Don't be a jerk. It's not that hard. Just just be nice to people, all right? Thanks to Dave Coyle so much for being a part of this. Dr. Coyle is, again, an amazing researcher and educator and communicator, and it was just such an honor to have him on the show. And, oh, another thing, cut down your Bradford pears. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thanks once more to the Texas Tech Department of Plant and Soil Science for all the support. Thanks to hashtag Forest Proud for sponsoring the show for the next few months. And um, most of all, thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of this. You know that this is just a pleasure to do for you. And uh, I hope you know how much I love y'all. I really do. Genuinely, truly, truly do. You've built such a cool community around planthropology, and it is just such a fulfilling part of my life. I hope that you enjoyed the show. I hope you'll tune in next time. And uh, I hope that you'll keep being cool plant people and keep being kind to each other. And if you haven't been kind to each other so far, maybe give that a try. Y'all take care and I'll talk to you next time.
You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.